This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 111. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm your host tonight, and tonight I'm, enjo- I'm joined by my dear colleague and co-host, Mike Yuseem. Hello, Ann. How are you tonight, Mike? I'm doing great. How are you? I am very good. And our third co-host, Jeff Klein, is off for the evening. He is actually attending, by di- invitation, a dinner at the People Analytics Conference, Mike. People Analytics. Uh, I think yeah. I know what that means. Well, I, w- okay, give me a I was actually going to quiz you on that, Mike. <laughs> okay, I'll see if I pass. Uh, All right, go ahead. You I'm take not a, a very st- good student. But <laughs> I don't know about that. All right, take a stab. What, what, what do we mean by People Analytics uh, here I think, at Wharton? I think it's our actually our terminology catching up with our practice. For years, people who run human resource departments have been using numbers to Oh, appraise candidates, uh, look at a year's performance. Does a person get a 4 or 8% uh, raise? But uh, analytics, the use of big data, has really mm-hmm. uh, come into its own. And increasingly, it is intruding into, let's say, Major League Baseball. Uh, yes. Moneyball, for starters. Yes, okay. Uh, maybe that's why the uh, Chicago Cubs advanced to the point they did in the World Series. They were great data users. But more generally, uh, numbers uh, seem, when it comes to people, to be handy as long as we don't go too far. And I've heard pushback on that, too. Yeah. Uh, numbers, very important, but we still got to have um, people in the equation. <laughs> in the there equation. Very good, Mike. Well, that's where Jeff is. And uh, this actually was a little bit of a rough week for us here at Penn and the university because we had another Nor'easter, our fourth Oh, yeah. No, we're getting used to them. We're getting used to them now. And the university did something that it rarely does, and that is close. University closed on Wednesday. Yeah, you know, I think it all comes down to another concept we kick around, which is enterprise risk management. Got to be savvy about the upsides and then also the downsides. As it turns out, it was a wise decision. I think we had a foot of snow, and it was going to make travel hazardous. University took the wise route, prevented uh, problems from happening. So how about that? I, Mike, you anticipated my uh, line oh, of thinking. I'm to be a because better student. <laughs> I was wondering if you saw that as a leadership action. Uh, it was a leadership action. And by the way, just to bring in another of today's or really the week's events on enterprise risk management, one Mark Zuckerberg has had mm. a very challenging week uh, given Cambridge uh, Analytica's uh, apparent misuse of a lot of data Private from Facebook. Data. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mark Zuckerberg, he's written, he's been on a fantastic ride over the last X years since he finished up at Harvard College there. That said, is it not true that if you mm-hmm. take on responsibilities, including the kind we're going to be talking mm-hmm. with one of our guests t- tonight about, uh, there are some great days, but you also have to be ready for those days that are extraordinary and not good. Mark's had a couple of those. Absolutely. And so, Mike, maybe this is a a good time and segue just to tell our listeners uh, what's on deck here, who's on deck. And in the first hour, I'm really delighted to be joined in studio, which is a real treat. Um, We're joined in studio with John Hurdle, executive chairman of Hurdle Callahan and Company here in Philadelphia. And he's been called one of the pioneers of investment outsourcing. And we'll learn a little more about what that is in the first hour. And then in the second hour, uh, you know, Mike, this is leadership in action. And we like to take a broad view of that notion of that you can enact leadership at many levels of the organization and in many fields and disciplines. So we have a treat, especially for those in the Philadelphia area. Our guest is Merrill Reese, who's going to talk about being the voice of the Eagles. You know, it's a really interesting implicit point there. The topic of this program, we've been at this for a couple of years now, is Five, Mike. leading, leading, <laughs> leading in action. And mm-hmm. we do this uh, sometimes with a big organizational chart that says people report to us and we get them to move in the right direction. But we mm-hmm. also do it through commentary that reaches a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Just to remind us all, Mahatma Gandhi had almost no direct reports, <laughs> but he had millions of people following his thoughts. 
And sometimes we lead through indirection. Absolutely. And we've got a lot of that from anybody in television or radio. They help lead the country one mm-hmm. way or the other these days. Very good. So how about since we have the pleasure of having our first guest, John Hurdle, in studio. John, let me welcome you to Leadership in Action. Great to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm just going to say a word here about your company and what you've been doing, but then we'll fill in a little more detail as we go along the way. You've been leading Hurdle Callahan for over 30 years, and you've helped direct and approve its investment philosophy which you distilled into four cornerstone principles. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about what those four cornerstone principles are. In your current role as executive chairman and chief client officer, you continue your intense focus on producing even better net outcomes for your clients. So why don't we start there with the four principles? What are the cornerstones? Well, first of all, you want to think about um, what, what we would start with what we call the investor's dilemma which is how do you protect assets and then grow them substantially after taxes, f- fees, and spending, and, uh, and inflation. So it's a big deal. It's hard. And mm-hmm. so you, it's really a never-ending challenge. So how do you do that? First, protect the asset. Our first client told us years ago that the first rule was don't lose the money. <laughs> Second rule was don't forget rule one. And the, the, third, <laughs> the third rule was grow it substantially after okay. inflation and spending. So you start with price and relative valuation. And this is actually one that I picked up from a Wharton grad named Howard Marks. And Howard is a luminary here. He used to be the head of the investment committee. But his line is, there is no asset in the world that's a good investment at any price. And there's Hmm. almost no asset in the world that isn't a good investment at some price. Hmm. So you start with relative valuation. If you overpay for a great company, it's not a good investment. Second thing is breadth of opportunity. Hmm. So this is a key simple one, but the law of active management says that success equals skill times the breadth of your opportunity set. This actually (laughs) applies to things more than investing. For example, if if, uh, Mike and I have the same skill in basketball and he gets twice as many opportunities to shoot as I do, he's going to have a higher score. If Ann, you and I can Mm -hmm. can both, we have the same analytical skill, Mm -hmm. but you can analyze 100 stocks and I can only analyze 10, Mm -hmm. you win. Mm -hmm. So that's the second thing. Breadth. (laughs) Third thing is time horizon. You know, there's a shortening and shortening and shortening of our time horizon these mm-hmm. days. But if you can turn that around and have a longer horizon, you can actually exploit the short-termism that's in the market as opposed to being exploited by it. The final thing is that only net returns matter. So you can't eat gross returns. You can only eat net returns. So you never want to use an active manager if you can use an index fund. Mm. But you don't want to be penny-wise and pound-foolish. You don't want to not pay for true value added, which would give you a better net return. So those are the four cornerstones, and everything we do every day really falls, we talk about, it's all within the context of that framework. All right, maybe one one more question for me, and then I'll hand the baton to Mike. And I I realize this might be one of the uh, million dollar questions or secret sauce. How do you know, how do you know a good price when you see one? Well, the way we look at it is we all, we believe that real investing and we want to draw a bright line between speculating and investing. And sometimes people think of Wall Street as a casino. Well, if you treat it like a casino, it can be one. Mm-hmm. But if it were a casino, then we always want to be the house. So we never want to take that mm-hmm. speculative bet. We want to always be investing, not speculating. So what is investing? Investing is acquiring future cash streams at the most attractive rate, period. That's it. So everything you do, you have to have a sense of what that future cash stream is going to look like. If you don't have a sense of that, you're speculating. If you're buying something you think is overpriced, hoping that it'll become more overpriced, you're speculating. So we want to be investors, not speculators. That falls back into num- rule number one, don't, <laughs> don't lose, lose the, the money. money. <laughs> right. okay. That's good. I think Mike, I'm going to pass to you, Sam, yeah, if that's I'm, all. I can do that. <laughs> How about a follow-up from uh, you, yeah, Mike? Well, John, just to stay on a couple of things here, and in particular this issue of time horizon. Mm. I've got a question about your own personal biography. I know you served in the U.S. Marine Corps. You worked at Goldman Sachs. And going back to those phases, earlier phases of your life, or maybe other events that are more recent, what has led you to put such an emphasis, it's one of your four main principles, on having the right time horizon? Well, I think, you know, um, if you, when you think about free enterprise and the opportunity to maximize profits, if you think about it over the long run, uh, it really reconciles free enterprise with ethics. 
because the way you maximize your income or your success over the long run is to deliver what you said you were going to deliver, to live up to your promises and to be a good citizen within your firm and with your clients and in your community. So it's just, I think it's part of sort of, you know, traditional wisdom that it's what matters in the long run. And then you can see um, that in the short run, there's so much noise. And so one of the ways in any kind of a scientific endeavor, from an investment standpoint, from any any kind of scientific endeavor, you're trying to increase the signal to noise ratio. And so what we're saying is that if that longer horizon, you can start to pick up the signals and, and, and not the noise. So, you know, that's my general philosophy. And, you know, my training at Goldman Sachs, I mean, was spectacular. And the people who ran the firm in those days were these greatest generation people. You know, mm-hmm. say they were both John Weinberg and John Whitehead, legendary figures, and both World War II veterans. I mean, substantial. So they had that kind of you know, greatest generation perspective, and that I love that. Yep. And back to the U.S. Marine Corps, is there anything in what you're doing now that has sort of a, in the back of your head something you might have picked up um, along the way, boot camp beyond or your, during your service? Well, you know, um, it's hard to separate. Every I can't really think of much I do every day that hasn't been influenced by being a Marine. Yeah. Um, so there are some things I learned in the Marines uh, that I think are always there with me. One was from personally, the Marines are interested in potential, but they're not too patient about you expressing it. So they want the potential <laughs> to come out. You know, don't be shy. <laughs> and they want it to turn into kinetic. You know, not potential. So in, <laughs> I remember one time I was standing in a line getting inoculations, which you get a lot of, and. I sort of said something to the commanding officer about it because my grandfather was a town doctor where I grew up, and you know I wasn't that big about getting inoculations for things you didn't need shots mm-hmm. for. And he just said to me, look, if we go into combat and you're sick, you're useless to us, so just take the shots. <laughs> just, <laughs> very practical. Get it done. Yeah. yeah. You saluted. Good yeah. idea. Yep. And the other one was um, that most humans underestimate their potential, hmm. and Marines really aren't about that. They really want you yeah. to maximize your potential, your capability. And, um, you know, I remember very clearly when I was in training that um, every day they would give us a task that seemed insurmountable. And they knew what they were doing, so guess what? You could do it every day. There was something that you had to work hard and you had to struggle with, but you completed it. And so the next day it was something harder, and the next day it was something harder. And you went through this process of wondering if you could accomplish it <laughs> and then accomplishing it. And at some point, you'd think that you've just decided that you can accomplish anything. And that's when you become a United States Marine. Mm. Now, Mike, when you asked that question, you reminded me of an interview we had long ago with uh, John Katzenbach, who wrote a book about the Marine Corps called Pride Matters More Than Money. And your response, John, about ethics uh, reminded Mm. me of that interview and that title, because you're tying a certain code of conduct to investment and not speculation. So sorry sorry to interrupt there, Mike, no, but it's, that's it's you analog. reminded me yeah. of that interview of long ago. Yeah. But you had another question. Uh, well, just to stay on John Katzenbeck for a second, he had been a McKinsey partner, broke off, runs his own firm, mm-hmm. and he has long worked with the U.S. Marine Corps for reasons akin to what John has just said. Mm-hmm. So he consults with business. But it is remarkable how much business can learn from the armed forces tradition in the U.S. And in particular on the Marine Corps, I really want to stay on this a little bit longer. It's all about, I like your phrase, kinetics and not your potential. (laughs) And, John, taking that now into the job you have doing what you're doing, how would we know that you're kinetic and not just sitting on your potential? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a tough question, Mike. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I mean, I think one of the reasons um, I really never thought I'd be in the investment business. But when I when actually once you get to it, it's sort of the crossroads or the uh, nexus of all the most competitive things that are going Mm -hmm. on in the world. And so every day you are have people all over the globe voting with their dollars based on their information. And we have, you know, billions of dollars of responsibility, tens of billions of dollars for for people with serious missions. So it's either philanthropists who are really funding the, the, uh, the institutions that are the cornerstones of our communities, or it's those institutions themselves. So this is serious money. And if we manage it well, it means more research, more scholarship, 
more security, more progress. And if we manage it poorly, the opposite is true. So it's a big mm. job, and we're in a very competitive space, and we wouldn't be at it very long if we weren't kinetic. <laughs> Excellent. I've got one more follow-up, and I'm going to turn it back over to Ann. And then back to the issue of time horizon. You know the debates out there. Uh, sometimes it's amazing. Time seems to have shrunk. A long horizon now might be a couple days, probably not more than a quarter. How do you fight in your investment strategy those other forces out there that are pulling us back to speculative investments or profit-taking or getting out while the getting's good, et cetera, et cetera? How do you, how do you combat short-termism? Well, that's a long, that's a long answer, but it yeah. comes down to going back to your talking about the Marine Corps and, and service in general. It's really leadership. And so with a client, if you are a chief investment officer, our job, we serve as chief investment officer for clients in 46 states. So the clients are asking you as an expert to lead them through the investment process. And we're managing complete solutions. So we're not just doing the growth portfolio or the value portfolio. We're taking our full capability. Mm -hmm. And the way we're organized is that we have this tens of billions of dollars of purchasing power. And we're using that collective to amortize research and to gain wholesale access. We sell no products and have no conflicts of interest. So we're taking that capability and then applying it to this puzzle, the client's fact pattern. And you're giving a solution. How does that come up with a solution? And so if you go to the doctor um, and you say, I want Advil, I don't know what you say, you want medicine. <laughs> the doctor would say, why? And say, well, it hurt, my arm hurts. He'd say, where does it hurt? So what we want clients to say, not to tell us what they want, but to tell us where it hurts <laughs> so that we can solve the problem for them. So when, they, when we are engaged as a chief investment officer, we come with a philosophy. And this, lo this longer-term perspective is part of that philosophy. And I think clients understand it. It makes sense to them. It yeah. also makes sense that we're buying cash flows. Because if they have an operating business, they know that that's a multiple of cash flow. It's a price-earnings ratio, or it's a multiple of EBITDA. So it's, if they own real estate, they're looking at cap rates or you know, cash rents and so forth. So if they can, it all makes sense. And then what we have to do is really be consistent leaders backed by data um, and so that we can persuade them to stay on the game. Yep. Very good. Just going to remind everyone that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Useem, and together we are interviewing John Hurdle, Executive Chairman of Hurdle Callahan. Callahan. If you have a question, maybe about investing, you might want to call. Our number is 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. So we're talking about horizons, so let me be a little naive and concrete. What is a long horizon, John? Well, um, certainly three years minimum. Five okay. years is better. Okay. And, um, you know, a lot of the pure research would indicate you have to be much longer than that. But what we realize is that committees and families really don't have the staying power uh, to go for a 10-year horizon or a 7-year horizon. Hmm. So three to five is really where we want to focus, not three to five quarters or three to five months or three to five minutes, hmm. but three to five years. Hmm. So your clients then are pretty long-term clients. Yeah, we have a, um, th one of the things we're proud of is we have a 97% client retention over 10 years. So. When we That's get clients, great. we're careful what we tell them, we're careful what we promise them, and we work really hard to deliver. Do you turn down clients? Um, that's a good question. I think we are frank in our interviews, mm -hmm. and so that there, it's more like we we self they sell we self unselect. You know? I, yeah, <laughs> we yeah. don't say no, mm -hmm. but we. Um, I think there are lots of times when we talk about our long horizon and why it works and how committed we are to it, as well as the valuation and our global approach. And it maybe just isn't right for all people. And if that's not right, do you find there's a pattern? For example, does it tend to be that tension between speculation and investment and wanting quicker returns? That can be it. It also can be more um, where the client, the prospect, or the candidate that we're being interviewed for wants to control it more themselves. They, want, they think of an old broker model, and they want to decide which manager they use and which investment they go into. Where with us, it's a very different mm. model. It's the same model we have here at University of Pennsylvania, where there is an investment committee mm. and then an investment office, an independent investment office, where they work just for the university, and then a bunch of specialist managers underneath it. 
And that's really state-of-the-art, and that's our big deal was to try and make that broadly available. Very good. <laughs> Mike, do you have a follow-up? <laughs> yeah. John, thinking about a couple companies I think all of us know quite a bit about that have taken a long, have made a long-term bet. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask for your reaction to, for example, CVS. Mm-hmm. Chief Executive Larry Merlo, a couple years ago, decided to take tobacco out of all of the several thousand stores in the U.S. Hugely expensive. Short-term hit, indeed. Another example comes to mind. Uh, the chief executive of PepsiCo in Renui has pushed to get the company into more healthful food out of the kind of snack yeah. food and, and sugar-laden products <laughs> that they are selling. Both of those decisions not cost-free in the short term. Mm-hmm. So as an investor, if you see uh, a Larry Merlot at CVS cost $400 million in the first quarter, uh, sacrificing short-term for long-term, what's your reaction, and do you want to keep your clients in that stock? Well, first of all, uh, I think those are two very different examples. And, you know, when we're making decisions, anything we do, whether it's healthcare or investments, it's based on probabilities. So when you're doing decision yeah. science, what's the likelihood that this is going to work? But in addition to that, there's, there's a philosophical consistency. So I believe that CVS is in the wellness business. So it, mm-hmm. it's inconsistent for them to be selling cigarettes. So that brand, are they a wellness brand or are they not a wellness brand? Mm-hmm. Pepsi is in the snack business, as far as I can tell. So mm-hmm. is there something evil about selling snacks to people who want to buy them? I'm not going to answer that question. That's somebody else <laughs> can answer that. Yeah. But mm-hmm. if you're in the snack food business, is it important for you to push healthy? Yeah. And, and that's a different question. So I would just say those two <laughs> questions are different because of what the companies fundamentally are. John, I hear you, uh, just to maybe to wrap this up and move on to other topics, being long-term requires an iron constitution. Because by <laughs> definition, we got some short-term losses. But we don't run to the exits when there is a bad quarter or even a, maybe a terrible year. And to put that even more affirmatively, let's think about investing in energy stocks these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, short term, next 10 years, they're probably going to do very well. Long term with climate change and all the events out there, maybe not. Well, we'll see. It's, it's an open question. So, again, back to your advice to clients mm-hmm. on thinking about the long term. Uh, what advice do you have? I'm, I'm going to be one of your clients right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't like to take a hit. Uh, by, it's my money my, this quarter. So how am I, uh, why am I going to stay on those stocks that are moving a bit more than I like to in the negative direction in the short run? Right. So we're going to have a broadly diversified portfolio. You know, wealth is created and lost through concentration. <laughs> and so when you think about how people create large pools of money, They take a lot of risk, but realistically, they have special information, whether it's a local real estate guy who knows that market, but it's concentrated. Once you move out of an area where you have special information, you want to remain diversified because you're now protecting and growing the asset. That doesn't mean be over-diversified, but your default position is to own the market as a proxy for American enterprise. So energy is a big part of the American economy. So unless you have a strong opinion, you want to own it at weight. So that's kind of, and you live with it. In other words, so when that asset is down, another asset will be up. Uh, The worst situation on this is when everything goes down at once. So this is, you know, December of 2008, Right. right? right? Now, 2008, interestingly, was more of an insurance challenge than an investment challenge. In other words, you can't invest run your life like you're investing for 2008 because 2008 happens so rarely. Um, But And so what you want to do is be able to have enough money put aside. A little bit speaks to your question, Mike, that if you have a very volatile experience, you can still sleep at night. So that's more an Hmm. allocation question. How much do I have that's really safe money? Um, And when you talk about tough decisions, that was extremely tough. Coming through 2008, we thought we had done well. Uh, Most you know, equity investors were down 50%. Think about that. Yeah. So a person with a, mm. an endowment that had a $100 million position in equities saw that go to $50 million. I mean, it is huge. Mm. And so what we did, which was probably the hardest thing I've done in my professional life, was re-risk in January. So we were mm. buying stocks in January. And if you remember, the market didn't turn until March. Right. Mm. So that was a very difficult time. And um, I can remember 
drawing on all my training and life experience to make sure <laughs> that we didn't blink when that was happening. Very good. Well, Mike, we're going to take just a short break here. Remind everyone that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm Ann Greenhall here with Mike Yuseem. Together, we're speaking with John Hurdle, Executive Chairman of Hurdle Callahan. We will be back in just a few minutes. If you have a question about investing, get your question ready and write down the number one eight four four Wharton one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 111. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Yuseem, and we are speaking with John Hurdle in studio live, and he is executive chairman of Hurdle Callahan. Uh, before, at the top of the hour, John, we were speaking about your four pillars, and I'm going to try to be a good student here, Mike. Uh, the first pillar was price, the second, breadth of opportunity, the third, time horizon, and the fourth, net returns. So don't be, you know, be not penny wise and not pound foolish. How am I check, doing? Check, <laughs> check, check. check. Yeah. All right. <laughs> now, we spent a lot of time speaking about time horizon, and I learned that ideally three to five years, and we were just beginning to talk about breadth of opportunity. So could we pick up that thread and just, would you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Well, um, you know, the equity markets, the stock markets, are a great proxy for the economy. So you can think of the S&P 500 as a proxy for the American economy. Earnings tend to grow faster than the GDP because managers make operating decisions. We call that operating leverage, you know, close the Pittsburgh plant and reinforce the Philadelphia mm -hmm. plant. That's mm -hmm. an operating decision that you hope adds value. And then they can leverage, they can borrow, and so they get higher returns for the shareholders. So it's a great proxy for the American economy. You just own the whole S&P 500. Uh, but what about the rest of the world? What about Novartis and Siemens and Samsung? So there's an index called the Alt Country World Index that includes all the investable countries in the world. And so that is a great starting point, a reference portfolio for an equity position. Mm -hmm. So we think of that as where you begin. And, and we really want to have that exposure. And then we want to divide them up. Well, the second step is we want to add things that aren't in those indexes. So, for example, if you add to that an investment-grade bond index to smooth volatility, well, what about high-yield bonds? That's an additional thing that's hmm. not in the investment-grade bond portfolio. So down across, you want to add, add, add. And then once you get done adding, you start to divide. And so, for example, <laughs> value and growth, small and large. So, you know, high-quality growth versus earnings, earnings momentum growth. So every time you divide, you've increased your breadth. And what that does is it gives you an opportunity to make, uh, to either overweight or underweight something. Now, even if you don't decide to do it, mm -hmm. you still have the opportunity, which ex ex expands your breadth. So it's a little bit wonky, but that's the idea. Maximize your opportunities to make your to apply your right. decision process. Okay, and now the philosophy may be the same on breadth, but the application is different for each client. It is, because each client's fact pattern varies. So, um, I, for example, we have a lot of about half of our businesses with college endowments. And about 10 years ago, maybe 12, a prominent consultant was going around the country advising everyone to invest like Yale. Well, Yale has a triple A-rated balance sheet and they're quadruple subscribed by qualified full-pay applicants, which isn't really the fact pattern for most colleges in the United States. So most colleges in the United States have far from a AAA-rated balance sheet, and they you know, really are struggling to get the seats filled. So those are different operating and financial leverage characteristics. And so you've got to solve for a different fact pattern. And so what we're doing is we may have a similar set of best ideas. We do have a, one set of best ideas but where they're going to be applied in a custom way to each client. Very good. Maybe one more then uh, back to Mike. Now for, let's say, the, I'm going to say the average listener, what, what point would be translatable for the average investor? Equities outperform debt. That's number one. <laughs> okay. So be in the stock <laughs> <Okay>. market. <laughs> be global and be patient. How about that? That's good. That's you, I like and, it. And All use right, index funds to start with. Use index, index funds to start with. Yeah. As opposed to trying to pick your own stocks. Right. right. And, because and, we're not specialists. 
Right, and they're low cost, and you don't have to pick your own, and so forth. All right, very good. Mike. <laughs> All right, John, let's uh, turn a bit to your own leadership of your own mm-hmm. firm. Uh, yes. You are executive chair. You're the chief, I think you call it chief uh, client. client officer. And as soon as I see those titles, I'm thinking you get work done through a lot of other people. Right. <laughs> Tell us how you lead the firm. What, what, what's your magic? Well, first of all, we have a dynamite chief executive officer that uh, has been with us almost two years. And so one of my uh, real thrusts over the last five years is to execute what has been written about called level five leadership. Yep. And so, Jim Collins. Right. So level four is you do everything right. Level five is you really prepare the organization to flourish after your departure. Mm-hmm. And I think you got to start early. And so the, one of the good, in my opinion, is one of the good ways to do that, especially with a founder-run firm, is to be there long enough to protect what was great about it and make sure that you're protecting and enhancing and so, um, you know, I am surrounded by really spectacular people. One of the things I would say, Mike, is it's not just talent. It's, it's really a big thing is about fit. Mm. And I know, Anne, you mentioned Meryl yeah. Reese is going to be on later. Yeah. And so <laughs> sports come to mind when you sure. think about teamwork and fit. Mm-hmm. And I have a good friend who's a uh, starting pitcher for a Major League Baseball team, and he likes to talk mm. about the chemistry in the locker room and how important it is that you have these different personalities mm-hmm. and how the dynamic is and how you interact with a coach. And so you can have a lot of talented people that don't gel, or you can have a lot of talented people that do gel. Mm-hmm. So it really is key is to figure out how to get everybody to gel and have fun while you're working because mm-hmm. it's intense what we do. Mm-hmm. So Can I ask you about the chemistry of <laughs> yeah. gelling? Yeah, that's a good <laughs> question. Uh, many many uh, sports teams, they've got great talent, and they, they try their best, and they can't uh, somehow make everything pull together. A bunch of great stars in the field, but uh, as a team goes, not a great performing team. So what's your method to help people not only bring great individual talent, but to then pull together and work as a team? One of the, you know, the key thing is to hire well. Now, you can't (laughs) always do that. Mm -hmm. But if you hire well, and what I mean by that is not just finding bright people and capable people, but having a lot of people in the organization interview them. Mm -hmm. So literally, I remember when I was at Goldman Sachs and I went in for my interview, I had 15 interviews in the first day. And um, so lots of people who are from different operating divisions who are going to work with this person, not only do they think they're capable, but do you want to work with them? Mm -hmm. So that's ideal, if you Mm -hmm. can really try early on to get the right people on the team. And then the second thing is to really make sure that you're not setting up um, you know, problematic compensation systems and silos. So you're working across and really supporting each other and Mm -hmm. collaborating in a um, in, a, in a muscular way, and that the culture really rewards muscular collaboration. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think all of those things, and then I think just a spirit of, just a positive energy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody in, you know, we don't believe in voicemail very much. I mean, we have it, but we always have a person on the desk. And when we walk in the front door, our receptionists are sort of famous for being, have, just creating the first thing you walk mm-hmm. in the door is positive energy. Yep, good so, to see you. Yeah. Uh, a final question for me along this line. We, I think we all know the phrase that begins at the top, the tenor at the top, and I think it is unequivocally maybe the most important mm-hmm. single driver of the mindset, the culture that evolves in the firm. So, John, as you consciously and some days probably quite unconsciously are setting the tenor at the top, what in your own experience seems to help you achieve that? You know, it's interesting. Um, I think about this a lot, but I don't talk about it very much. <laughs> most, of, most people don't. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And here we are on yeah. radio. <laughs> yeah. So I don't. I, I think it's just the way you conduct yourself. I yeah. mean, the first basics of leadership is leading by example. So that's that's table stakes. You got to lead by example. You got to be willing to do the work. You got to show up on time. You got to be willing to get on an airplane. You got to pitch in and help. You got to. You know, just be a good colleague. And if you want everybody else to be a good colleague, you've got to be a good colleague. Um, and so I think that's the leadership by example thing. But the other one is curiosity, where you're interested in people and what they, what they have to say about their work, but really who they are as a person. And um, I think that creates a, a – first of all, you get to know each other better. Mm-hmm. And the more you know people, in most cases, the more interesting they are, mm-hmm. the more interested you are in them. So we like this notion of relentless curiosity about mm. what we do and about each other and about our clients. 
So I think that's a good one that helps us create a positive feeling in the office and with our clients. Now, sometimes we uh, like to talk a bit about resilience and learning from failure. So can when you think back on your career is the is there a moment that stands out where where you had an invaluable experience if if painful? Well, I mentioned the 2008 experience. Yeah. Um that was I think for everybody in the industry that was, you know, really an instructive moment. Um interestingly, we didn't in retrospect, I didn't think we learned too much from it uh, because we felt like we did everything we could going in. Mm-hmm. So I always like to say, Anne, that I, my mm-hmm. life I've been like relentlessly pursued by good fortune. So I, you know, I don't have a lot <laughs> of tragedy to talk to you about. Unfortunately, it would be more interesting, <laughs> I guess. But I'm, I'm struck by the fact that Daniel Boone used to say that, uh, <laughs> you know, they asked him if he'd ever been lost. And he said, no, I've been confused for two or three days, but never lost. You know. <laughs> That's great. So I've been I've had oh, yeah. plenty of setbacks, but they mm-hmm. weren't really yeah. you know, I didn't feel mm-hmm. like they derailed us too mm-hmm. much. Yeah. And so when you look back at two thousand and eight, is there anything that you would do differently or would you say you would do it the same? Knowing, you know, one of the things I think that's I read a lot of history and so the notion of revisionist history is always just blows me away. You know, yes. that people yeah. knowing what I know today, would I have done something differently then? Yeah, uh-huh. if I knew what I know today, <laughs> I would have completely been out of the market. Uh, yeah. But I didn't know that. Right. And so what we know, if you went through that period of time, valuations were not extended. So when you talk about our fundamental approach, mm-hmm. so there were no real warning signs about valuation. There were warning signs about leverage, about borrowing in the, in the, in the financial markets. And so our position was we knew something was going wrong, but we couldn't figure out what it was. And so mm-hmm. in the August of, of 2007, we, did def- we had our first decision, which was we changed all our money market funds from, this is technical, but prime yeah. to treasury. So gave up a little yield, but maximized the safety of the cash mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because we didn't know what was wrong and we didn't want to dampen the portfolio potential, but we knew something was going on. And there were things like the cash markets and the futures market were starting to trade in very strange ways relative to each other. And later that spring, the next year, in the beginning of 2008, we stopped all of a thing called stock loan, which we do to reduce clients' cost. We lend stock when people are shorting. It's a technical thing again. But we stopped that because during that process, their collateral becomes prime as opposed to treasuries. So we thought we were coming to the end of a credit cycle. There was too much leverage and you'd come to another. So we emphasized quality across all the investments. And so we did a lot of good things. In the last two weeks in December, it didn't matter. You know, it was just a, a fire sale. Everybody was racing for the door. So that's when it became to me clear that this was really a, an insurance challenge, not an investment mm-hmm. challenge. That we really have, these are kind of things, you don't live your life like you're going to walk out of the door and have a brick fall on your head and kill you. That's not how, mm-hmm. you can't live your life that way, so you buy life insurance. So what is the insurance that you need so that if we have another 2008, you can live through it and then get on with investing? Okay, so so do you take that approach with each of your clients? Well, we talk about it, and whether the clients, this is a pretty, um, and so we want them to make sure if it's a family that they have whatever it takes, and it can be a very personal decision mm-hmm. uh, on what it's going to take for you to feel comfortable during that, during one of these crises mm-hmm. moments. Because, mm-hmm. you know, they talk about diversification and how the point on diversification is that Stocks may go down and bonds don't go down. You know, so everything's kind of, or growth stocks go down, but value stocks don't go down. Or U.S. goes down, but international doesn't go down. In a crisis, everything moves together because people are no longer making decisions based on value or cash flows. (laughs) They're just running for the door. Right. Okay, so, but but that philosophy holds both for your clients who are investing endowments and also, though, for the individual investor to just ask that tough question, what, what would it take to have you feel comfortable? Right. And make sure that you've got that under your feet solidified and then go on with the business of investing. Right. Might be how long, how many months of operating cash if you're a, an endowment that you're going to need to have absolutely safe. Right. So that you can w- wait out that crisis. Very good. All right, Mike. <laughs> Let's stay on that topic with a leadership twist to it. <laughs> I often hear from people who carry major responsibility that they spend a fair amount of time trying to read developments in the market, trying to read the customers, trying to understand where the competitors are moving. Easier said than done. Uh, taking that into your own business, you're probably constantly 
there with uh, four or five radars trying to appreciate what's happening that could affect the pricing of just about mm-hmm. everything that you're, you're invested in. Question for you is this. How do you optimize your sense-making of the market, your ability to see weak signals? Remember Bear Stearns was kind of a weak signal. or It was more than weak, but it was something a lot mm-hmm. of people didn't heed when it failed before Lehman. So, John, how do you go about ensuring that you're kind of ahead of the market and also, to say the obvious here, ahead of your customers? They're not thinking about this. They pay you to do that. How do you do it? Hmm. Well, we're always trying to – I want to introduce the notion of a, of a harmonic, which is um, sometimes people would say a balance, you know, balance between value and growth, risk and return, risk and security, income and, and growth, so forth. Um, but you can apply it to anything in life, federal authority versus private private uh, rights, you know, personal rights, personal freedom. And we, would, we use the term harmonic because we're trying to find a sweet spot where you actually get, you know, the most progress, the most bang for your buck. So it's not defense sound, balance sounds defensive to me, and we're really using this notion as an offensive notion. So we have this timeless approach, which we've taken a long time to develop, and we believe in deeply. And so what we're looking at is market inputs. Now, markets have information in them, no question about that. Um, it's just like if you and I were going to bet on the, you know, the next Eagles game, we, <laughs> might, we might ask what the Las Vegas line is. Well, there's mm-hmm. information yeah. in that. So sure. we went, now we, it may not change the mm-hmm. way we feel, but mm-hmm. we want to get that information mm-hmm. before we bet. Mm-hmm. Same thing is true with markets. All these people around the world every day are giving us data. Yeah. And whether the data is information or just noise, we have to decide. And so that's sort of the magic of what we do is when is it time to act and when is it time to sit tight? Yeah. And it's, a, it's an ongoing process. Um, you want to have this patient, disciplined, what we call active waiting. But at the same time, the active part of the active waiting is what am I missing? What am I missing? What am I missing? That curiosity, that humility that says you don't know everything. And you can make a lot of money being a contrarian, but you can be wrong for a long, long time. And being <laughs> wrong too long, being wrong, being too early is the same as being wrong. So. <laughs> John, I went to an event in uh, January 08, keeping in mind that Lehman fails in September 08. Yeah, right. And at this event was the then CEO of Merrill Lynch. Mm. He was very pessimistic. And I recall walking out of the room hearing people grumbling about how as a CEO you're supposed to be optimistic. And he was actually very downcast about gloomy even. And I learned a lot from witnessing that moment. Now, I read a lot that you read. I, I don't get all the technical information coming in that you receive. But to what extent is your literal physical presence outside mm. of the office kind of just in the market a factor in developing your own intuition? Well, there's no question that um, it's, it's – I think of it as like a mosaic. So your each input is a tile in the mosaic. And – you have to have enough perspective to see the picture. So what we see in the market in the short-termism is that they're looking at each element, each, mo- each tile in the mosaic, and it's so close that they can't see the larger trend. So you want to really, and you, if you have 30 years of trying and learning, you've got lots of pieces in the puzzle already. And then these other pieces fall on fertile ground, to mix my metaphor. And then if you can have the perspective from talking to other people and from reading, by the way, I, you know, I, there is a um, you know, funny expression that was from, uh, you know, it talks about how some people learn by reading, some people learn by observing, and some people have to just, you know, make the same mistake over and over again. So <laughs> yeah. we'd like to be in the first camp, you know. And yeah. so we really are reading and observing and trying to figure out, and I think this comes, you know, the, the Kahneman and Tversky, the behavioral uh, finance people, say that judgment is nothing more and nothing less than the sum total of your experience and examined, you know, and so yeah. examined experience. What do you learn from it? And we don't use, this is a, a message one of my, one of the people, a mentor, I guess, years ago taught me is that we don't use history to, con- to uh, predict the future. We use it to confirm common sense judgments. So that's what it is. It's common sense. Cash flows matter. <laughs> be disciplined. Be patient. Don't overpay. I mean, these are things that are, we all know make sense, <laughs> But people move away from them because of all the noise and the human mm-hmm. and the animal spirits. 
Lisa. Very good. Well, let me remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action. And in this hour, Mike Yuseem and I, Ann Greenhall, are speaking with John Hurdle, who is executive chairman of Hurdle Callahan. So I love that expression, examine, examined experience. So I'm going to go backwards for a moment and then forward. So when you were a young man, what did you think you would be when you grew up? <laughs> a veterinarian. Ah, is that right? I, a know, veterinarian. I, yeah. And um, so my undergraduate degree was in agriculture, and, um, and I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then I changed my mind. But I actually think it's interesting that a lot of innovation comes from outside mm. of a field. There's a lot written about this where engineers mm-hmm. will innovate, you know, in art or mm-hmm. artists will innovate in religion. You know, I mean, it's this. And so my lack of background in investing before I went to Wall Street, I think, really allowed me to come there with a set of fresh, fresh eyes. Yeah. So I definitely wanted to be a veterinarian. I never thought I'd be in the investment industry. I didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond. And, um, but once you get into it mm-hmm. and you see how hard it is and how competitive. And the other thing is that our, our clients, I mentioned this earlier, do really important work. And so we really believe that this is important work we do, and mm-hmm. we want to do it well for them. Mm-hmm. Very client-centric. That's a big deal in our culture. Yeah. So you have a sense of, of mission on behalf of your clients. We do. My mentor at Goldman Sachs was a guy who had been a submarine officer. And the day I got there, I said to him, what's the noble cause? His name was Bill Groover. He's a professor <laughs> at Bucknell right now. He's oh. still still very vital. Um, but I, I said to him, what's the noble cause? And he knew me well enough not to say, what do you mean, noble cause? This is Wall Street. Right? So, he <laughs> said, so he said, the client is the noble cause. <laughs> so good. that really was um, such a pivotal moment, and that's really the beginning of all of this. Mm-hmm. And so it's that kind of you know, where that inspiration mm-hmm. comes yeah. from to lead on behalf of the client in this very challenging endeavor. Did John, you? Oh, sorry, go Mike. Go ahead. No, John, we're getting close to the end of our time, and I'd like to kind of stay where Ann has us mm-hmm. right now, with the benefit of looking back. Yeah. Whether somebody wants to become a veterinarian or a, a investment manager or a consultation provider, what advice would you have them with the benefit of a couple years uh, later on in your own career? So think of the twenty-five-year-old who might be listening to this show. What advice would you have? Well, you know, I'm struck by when I think about that, we had um, one of the Penn professors is Angela Duckworth, who oh, wrote yes. this book, Grit, mm-hmm. right, which is about achievement. Mm-hmm. And she said the book is so um, well assembled. And her we she spoke at our investors conference, I think, two years ago. And her notion is that uh, achievement comes from almost compound, increasingly informed, focused effort. Mm-hmm. Now, what does it take? to do compound, increasingly informed, (laughs) focused effort. It takes something that you're interested in. And I think, and she sort of lampoons the notion in there of finding your passion, Mm -hmm. and I agree with her. Mm -hmm. I think for a young person to tell them to find their passion is a little bit of a stretch. Um, So, But find what you could be interested in. First of all, decide what you're not interested in. You know, like just don't go there, and no matter how much the money is, don't go there. Go into something that you're interested in because the more you know about it and then and then get informed. Mm-hmm. So talk to people who have worked in that area. Read about it. Get historic perspective. And the more you know about it, the more fascinating it will become. And so then that compounding over the years of increasingly informed, focused effort will not be a, a, a you know, will not be a, a grind. It will mm-hmm. be something that you enjoy because it's interesting to you. Mm-hmm. That's great. So you... You went to undergrad expecting that you would be a vet. Did you go right into uh, the military? Into, I did. Okay. And then did you do a tour of duty with the Marines? I was overseas in the 3rd Division, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. And uh, then I came back and trained recruits at Paris Island. Oh. And then my last tour of duty was, um, was as an officer selection officer. So I was recruiting officers. And that was gave me an opportunity to go to graduate school and then... I heard somebody told me in graduate school that um, you could make $100,000 a year working on Wall Street, but you couldn't get a job. And I said, well, I don't know what they do on Wall Street, but I'll bet I can get a job. So <laughs> <laughs> I got the job, and then I learned what they did. <laughs> That's so good. And was your first position with Goldman Sachs? It was. 
And along the way, we often talk about um, mentors. You've mentioned you mentioned one, mm-hmm. and were there other mentors who uh, were inspiring to you? You know, so many. Now, Bill Groover was one because he wasn't just uh, somebody you learned from, but he was also uh, a taskmaster. So he had a high standard. It was mm-hmm. part of. He was really a legend at that moment in time at Goldman Sachs because he was the one who did the cultural transformation, and you know, getting a lot of uh, very high-performing people, especially from you know, uh, prominent business schools and coming into that that really collaborative culture and how do you sh- make that shift that it's all about the firm? And this is a long time ago, uh, mm-hmm. 35 years ago. But so he was key there. Uh, but other people along the way and, you know, Arthur Miltenberger, who was the first chief investment officer I ever knew, who was the CIO for the, for the R.K. Mellon Foundation, really was a role model. Uh, Scott Miller, who was another Goldman guy who really taught me, still remains a great friend, taught me what it meant to really serve a client, really Mm. be Mm client-focused. Bill Keeley, who was the head of the research department at Goldman, I kept going back to him saying, I don't understand because we're really not delivering what the client needs. You know, we're giving them stock picks and bond picks Mm -hmm. and things like that, but they need this complete answer. And he was, you know, just wise enough, uh, and he created this whole program. That brought he brought in money managers and researchers and said this is how they really do it and oh, so he was the guy that really sort of started the intellectual process of what we now call portfolio engineering which is this total solution thing so so many it's really hard it goes back to that mosaic yeah I think when you're a young person you know you're looking for a role model but as you get older you realize you have to assemble this avatar for who you want to become and you take a piece from this person who you like and you also by the way from biographies. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. a big reader in biographies, and I love what you learn from each one of these people, which you probably learn more than, than if you knew them personally, you know, <laughs> if you read a great biography. Really? So. Does a favorite come to mind? Well, the one I'm reading right now is called uh, Founder's Son. So it's another biography of Abraham Lincoln. And uh, really, it's, you know, it's, it's a great one. Mm, so good. Well, John, we have so enjoyed having you on the show tonight. It's really been a pleasure. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And can you tell listeners a little bit more about how they might find out more about your firm? Well, I guess the easiest way is to go to our website, which is www.hurtlecallahan.com, and that's spelled H-I-R-T-L-E-C-A-L-L-A-G-H-A-N.com. Very good. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. John, thank you. Well, Mike, uh, we're going to have a second show in just a few minutes, and we're going to be speaking with legendary broadcaster Merle Reese, known as the Voice of the Eagles. What do you think of that, Mike? <laughs> I'm anxious to hear the voice of the Eagles. So, And do you have some uh, questions lined up for Merrill Reese? I do. Do you? We're All good, right. Yep. Very good. And maybe just a little short uh, reflection here before we make the transition. Something stand out from our conversation with John that we might use in yeah. transition to talk with Merrill Reese. That's a stretch and question for you, Mike. John implied he did this, uh, which is to to look back on something we've talked about or learned or a book Mm -hmm. we've read and really pull out a couple thoughts. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of it's all about kinetics and not just potential. All right, I've got one for you, Mike. How about muscle collaboration? Yep. Do you think that's something Merle would want to talk about? That's a good one. And how about (laughs) maximizing your capabilities? We all got a lot. Sometimes they just sit there dormant. Very good. Bring them out. All right, I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Useem. And we are on Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 111. And we will be right back. Thank you. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.